Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace, and welcome to a special edition of Beyond the Album Cover. I have on the phone with me right now my man, Law. He is one of the most well-known commodities in the music industry, played bass for some of your favorite artists, primarily Amy Winehouse, and he comes from a musical family, Mr. Sam, blues man, Taylor. We're going to get more to that in the interview, so i got to welcome my homie. Law to the podcast. Welcome, my man. Yeah, what's going on, bro? It's so great to, to finally be here. You know, thank you so much for having me on there. I'm, I'm humbled and I'm honored. Thank you so much, man. No, sir. I should be the one that's humbled because we were talking about uh, before we came on that you've been following my previous interviews for years and didn't know yeah. it was me the whole time. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how, how life works, especially in the music industry, because there's always... um the expectancy, but then expect the unexpected. But yeah, I've been a fan of yours for many years because, like I've always said to you, um, you basically done what I felt every journalist should do when they when they when they're interviewing the legends or finding out the cultural parts of music that we love. You ask the questions that a lot of the other mainstream media doesn't even bother to ask, or nor do they really care. Everybody just wants to get to dirt and all this kind of stuff. So I've always admired your broadcast journalism, and as you know. We have that in common because that's what Law would be doing if, if I didn't take music so seriously. I would either be boxing, playing football, or I definitely would be a journalist. I actually have a few published articles on Newsday from over the years that I've done for various newspapers when I was still getting my foot in the music industry door. So I'm a fan of yours, bro. Oh, man. It is totally um, reciprocated on my end. So let's go ahead and get this started. So where did your love of music come from and was based the first instrument that you picked up? Okay. So, of course... My love for music was inherited on every level because, number one, my incredible mother, Sandra Taylor, a noted singer in her own right, you know, first um, first place winner at the Apollo in the mid-'80s, you know, that sort of thing. And, of course, my father, who was a truck driver, but my father was also a drummer, too, Lawrence Worrell Sr. So being a drummer, but, you know, he it was more of a hobby for him, whereas his brother, my uncle, Rudy Worrell, took it even more seriously because my uncle, Rudy Worrell, is a, is a legendary drummer that played behind Millie Jackson, the Dramatics, and a whole list of other people. So it was already embedded in me from birth. I mean, just growing up in a household of a lot of entertainers, singers, and musicians that were already somewhat on the map and doing things in the music industry when I, when I was born into it. And drums is my first instrument. This is before ba- bass didn't really come till later. Bass is actually my third instrument. So it's always interesting when people like you and other folks who are fans of my music or know the history because the whole thing they would always be like, I saw Law play guitar, but I saw Law on drums. I saw Law playing bass. So everybody has a different account. That's where the whole most talented kid music thing comes. We're going to talk about that later. But the thing is that it, I was born into it. So when you have, my family was my Juilliard for music at such an early age. So everybody had a section. My late great uncle Bobby Real Deal Taylor um, one of the baddest first tenor singers in New York. He won the Apollo 13 times and things of that nature. So he was really a Motown guy. So having the whole plethora of that with the Motown and the 70s groups like the Stylistics, Dramatics, so that was mainly his thing. And, of course, my legendary grandfather, Sam Boozman Taylor, who's the pretty much the, the first rock star of the family for the most part, you know, for lack of a better phrase, because of him and the blues and funk, you know, with 
Big Joe Turner, Etta James, the Ozzy Brothers, and of course, definitely more famously known for the work he did with BT Express with Duty Satisfied and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you know, my mother and my first cousin, Cheryl Pepsi Riley, who you know, of course, for Thanks for My Child and being one of the baddest singers on the planet. So long story short, my love for music was, I couldn't, even if I would have tried to escape it, I wouldn't have been able to. Even if I would have been, and it, it wasn't forced upon me, it wasn't, you know, like, you're going to do music. And it was just like, I gravitated at three years old. I was already singing as I was talking. So, you know, I was already kind of shaking to the beat. And by the time I turned four or five years old, I was already beating on pots and pans and books in the house because I already had a natural thing for drumming because of my father and my uncle. But then my uncle Rudy had two children who were my cousins, um, Rudy and Rashid. They became better beasts on drums than me for obvious reasons. Look who their father is. Like, my father was an okay drummer, but Uncle Rudy was a supreme drummer. So, of course, that filtered down to his kids. So when I saw that happening, I'm like, I'm going to keep playing drums but uh you know what i'm gonna pick up this guitar and then my grandfather being my first guitar hero for obvious reasons because you know he would come off the road and come into new york and visit the family and he would sit with me but it didn't really make sense for me until i discovered two entities by the name of Jimi hendrix and prince and once i discovered those two at that age guitar was my instrument of choice and then later on of course um you know my mother bought me a casio keyboard so that helped me out with learning by ear and hearing different things i was only six or seven at this time so it's like I'm learning all this stuff at an early age because of the family that I belong to. So that's really where my musical love began and continued, you know? All right. And uh, speaking of Hendrix and, of course, Prince, I feel this guy right here doesn't get enough credit and is very underrated as a guitarist, Shuggy Otis. Oh, hell yeah. Without question. Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I got into Shuggy years later. Like a lot of other, I always say, you know, here's the thing. Let me say this real quick. I'm an 80s baby and a 90s kid. So the, the great thing about us 80s babies and 90s kids is that we were in the middle of the music that came before us, which is our parents' generation, and then the future of what you're seeing now where there really are no more rules anymore. We're the middle of all that because you got to remember, when the 80s and 90s came along, a lot of us 80s, 90s babies, we had to go back. Backwards. So I discovered Shuggy Otis because my other uncle was a huge Brothers Johnson fan. So, of course, Strawberry Letter 23. And I didn't realize at the time, you know, because all I heard was the Brother Johnson version. And then one day, my uncle was playing a whole bunch of records in the house, and he played the Shuggy version. And it was much more raw, much more, a little bit slower than the Brother Johnson version, and had a little bit more depth to it. And I'm like, ain't that the brother? He said, no, this is the guy they got it from. So, and this is like 87, 88 for me. So, Again, going backwards, having to learn how all these people who were still existing in the ever-changing music world of my era and how these guys were still holding on. So you're right. Not only guitar player, but just all-around instrumentalist. I'm pretty sure he was definitely an influence on Prince, without question. I think Prince's first album for you, in my personal opinion, I said, yeah, he was definitely listening to some Shuggy Otis, without question. He you can hear it, mm -hmm. you hear it in songs like Crazy You. You hear it in songs like, baby, what are we gonna do? That's Shuggy all the way. That whole vibe with the harmonies and all that stuff you know so yeah mm -hmm. definitely shuggy yeah without question yeah definitely without question so with the famous who's who's that would come over to the house were there famous drum breaks and guitar licks that you would learn like you were taking records by let's say grand central station tower power war and study those front to back like when i was growing up in that era oh yeah yeah I yeah because yeah. i remember here's the insane thing that happened like i was telling you earlier my family was my juilliard for music so let's focus on that one second if you know anything about juilliard that's pretty much the grand all to be all for anybody that wants to go to learn the arts or just go into music school. Everybody had a section in my family. So, um, of course, 
with my father, you know, he was always into, he was into the funk a little bit, but he was more so about the ballads and certain R&B songs. So, of course, Ozzy Brothers, and that's why I'm such a diehard Ozzy Brothers student to this day, because that's all he played. For the majority of time, he played the Ozzy Brothers albums more than anything else. So, him and, of course, my mother, who's already on the scene singing after she had me. So, I had the gospel part of it, Tremaine Hawkins, um, Hawkins Family, you know, things like that, you know. And then, of course, I always call it the, the Six Divas of the world and we know who those names are we can name them all together Shaka Patty Aretha Natalie Cole Donna Summer um, Patty LaBelle Phyllis Hyman I was already getting that education between the ages of 5 and let's say 10 years old so the greatest thing happened my uncle and my aunt had got married my uncle Tony and just so we're clear my uncle is legendary drummer Tony T. Funk Austin who played for Cool in the Gang and he played with James Brown and he was one of the most notorious drummers in New York around that time at the time I didn't know but I was learning because I'm learning and more about my family and who does what and who, oh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm studying. I'm like a real intense kid at that time. So at one point, they were waiting for their apartment. They, they didn't get the clearance on getting their apartment. So my uncle and my aunt stayed with me and my mother for a time. And my uncle Tony, I thought my grandfather had a sick record collection, but uncle Tony had the craziest record collection. And that was probably the record collection that had the most influence on me because uncle Tony had everything from Mahavishnu Orchestra to Slave to the Ohio players to Brand X and in case you don't know who Brand X is Brand X was the side project that Phil Collins was playing on when he wasn't doing Genesis this was, this was before Phil Collins solo stuff see it's a lot of deep stuff this is when Phil Collins was doing like this funk progressive rock thing he had been doing that with um genesis but he was more so progressive rock it wasn't really funk but brand x was the two albums that phil collins played drums on so my uncle was deep so in one minute to be commodore he turned me on to chicago <laughs> before the heart to say i'm sorry ever he turned me on to i just want to be free the first six chicago albums ohio players there's a lot of funk but he showed me the diversity within these funk groups he showed me how each funk group was different from each other or how each funk group either borrowed from one of the other groups and then and of course, a whole lot of earth in the fire, without question. So, yeah, I was that kid at home. We used to call ourselves the line of notes kids, me and my brothers and my cousins, because we would sit there for hours and read the line of notes, learn what, what, a, what a, we, didn't, we didn't even know what a Mellotron was. <laughs> we didn't know what a clavinet was until we bought a Stevie record. So it's almost like we were intensely listening to all of these albums, studying the culture of musicianship. And what made it so good is that we were growing up around it because look who our family members were. So we were, I was, I was, my mother had to go to do a rehearsal with guys that were members of Crown High School. We're going to get into that later. But like members of all these different groups, I was always the tag along because unlike most kids, I love hanging out with my mother. It's a difference. You know, it wasn't like the whole, I'm lying, I'm lying my mother. Like, I love hanging with my mother because I was learning. I was already so deep and involved, and I knew that that was my destiny at such a young age. So at five, my mind was already made up. I'm like, man, I'm studying. I'm getting into everything. I'm like, you couldn't. That, that's what that's what kept me still. If I didn't get my ass whooped for being, you know, mischievous, that's what kept me still most of the time. I could sit in front of a record player and listen to it, sit in front of a cassette player and dissect harmonies, learn who's doing what note, um, who's playing based on that, or how they doing that note. I was learning all of that, and I wasn't even ten yet. I was, I was. I wasn't even close to being a teenager yet. So, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. I was doing that as a kid without question. Yeah, definitely studying the roots because kids, there used to be a thing called albums. And on the back of the albums, there would be credits where they'll show who played what, who wrote yeah. the song, arranged it. So definitely go to your local thrift store and get an album, study your line of notes. Now, by you going up 
and being steeped in funk, what was that transition like for you seeing the early stages of hip-hop? And was it that generational clash in the family where they were not really for hip-hop because it wasn't of their generation? And that's a great question. This is why I'm glad we're doing this. And this one, now you see why I'm a fan of yours because... Of course, I see. I've always had to explain to a lot of my fans that came on later. Like, like when I started doing my stuff in, you know, in the early 2000s and into now, a lot of my older fans who didn't necessarily care for hip-hop because before I get into that, the biggest compliment that I have ever gotten was there was this older guy. He was about, I'm, I'm going to say probably, you know, mid-50s, late-50s, early-60s. I can't really tell, but I can tell you he's definitely an older gentleman. And he came to me after my show. I, was, I had a show at the Bitter End. You know, we, you know, we slammed as usual. You know how we do. We kicked ass. He came to me and said, young man, I just want to tell you this. I'm, I'm going to be very honest with you. I said, sure. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm welcome. Like, it, it, it could have been something bad. I'm just like, what is he going to say to me? And I'm like, he said, I'm not going to lie to you. I was not a hip-hop fan at all until tonight. Do you really show me a view scope on where hip-hop is and where it should be said because even with some of his new stuff hip-hop is something that i never really understood but because of your musicianship and your presentation of combining hip-hop with funk and rock and roll and my personal favorite the blues that's what he said he said i'm a blues guy he said i learned more about who your granddad was and i saw you playing certain licks that were very like albert collins and that's funny because albert collins of course is like my uncle i grew up with albert collins in my house so, going back to your question, I just wanted to put that there to let you know that's the reason why Planet 12 is growing every day and why we're getting achieving so much because we're bringing everybody, we've been bringing everybody together. We made people that normally wouldn't like funk and R&B, we got them. And people that normally wouldn't like hip-hop and heavy metal, we got them. And people who didn't even like country, they all like it because now it's like, well, law, the way law presents it is different. So, going back to when hip-hop first started. Now, of course, my roots are gospel, funk, and R&B. So, the thing with that is that me growing up singing in church, because Pentecostal Baptist, so I grew up singing in my grandmother's church the whole bit, and then of course the funk thing because of my uncle, and of course R&B because of Uncle Bobby and, and my mother, and the lineage that we have, my grandfather who did pretty much all the doo stuff and everything else. When hip-hop came along, of course, as we all know, it's the language of the street, the culture. We had a thing where this was something that spoke directly to my generation. The greatest thing about my family is that, with the exception of my grandfather, my mother was a hip-hop fan. In addition to all the R&B that she was singing even though she wasn't crazy about it but she understood and respected the fact that it was this new thing taking over the streets that, that my kids my age were getting into the first rap record my mother bought in the house was The Message you know Furious 5 and then the first two rap albums that she bought me as a gift for my birthday because she saw how deep I was getting into this stuff was Run DMC's King of Rock and the Fat Boys first album so she began to really understand that her son was getting into all this prefla and then she didn't rap so of course I knew about post Poetry, I couldn't really, you know, I was interested. So my incredible uncle, Jock Taylor, who we call Showbiz, he used to hang out with Kumo D and those guys in the Bronx. So he was a rapper. And I didn't realize at that time he was adopting these new thing with the rapping style. Because if you know anything about the hip-hop culture, there was a song called New Rap Language by the Treacherous Three, Kumo D. The Always Rock and Never Stop at Hip-Hop and Never Done a Record Record, like that whole type of style. And Showbiz, my uncle, was doing that with his rhymes. So I wanted to be like my uncle. I'm like, I want to rhyme like that. And then I was always good with words anyway, even as a kid. So I knew how to make certain things pop up. Now, of course, I wasn't nice from the gate. You know, no, no MC is just that dope from the gate. It takes time to put time into your writing, your, your metaphors, your cadence, your, your, the way you phrase certain words, your flow meter. I had to learn all that gradually, of course. Like, it's like learning a guitar. You learn, you know, your speed don't come off right away. You learn how to pick and choose, play slowly, learn what you learn, get what you get with it, repeat it until it becomes set in nature. So when I got immersed into it, I was very supportive. And then my Uncle Bobby, who was my main teacher, vocally, singing-wise, he really became 
that much of a teacher to me because that was his whole thing too. False settle singer, singing Motown, doing all the Smokey Robinson, Louis Baby, but my uncle was a hip hop head because you gotta remember, at the age where he was, the automatic B-boys who were in their mid-20s or early 30s, that was their culture. Him and my uncle Kevin, they were B-boys. So even though they was doing all this R&B stuff, they still loved hip hop. So anytime you would hear um, Shannon's at the music play, my uncle would put on In Jail, In Jail, because be fair, like it was, so it, in our household, it was rampant. Like it was never nobody saying, why are you playing that noise, except for my grandparents. And of course, my grandfather later got into it for obvious reasons, because when DMX sampled his record, then he became the ultimate hip hop fan. We'll get into that later. Mm. But um, yeah, it, it's that. It, it became that whole point of my world colliding all at once. Because on one hand, here I am singing in church, you know, and then I'm coming home singing all these Temptations, The Barge, Silvers. I'm singing all these records in the house, giving doing family shows. And then when I'm chilling with my friends, I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. Sucker MCs. They call like cause it, the, the energy in hip hop to us directly because it's youth correlated music. That's why I hate when people be like, man, hip-hop. I said, we got to remember, hip-hop has always been about the youth from the very beginning. So even in retrospect, when you get older, the whole point is to become nice. That's why Big Daddy Kane could still tour to this day. That's why LL Cool J is still touring in 2020. Not now because of the current situation, but at that particular point, it's all relative. So there were no issues in my house. My family was very hip to what was going on, and I think that's really what made it easier for me to make the transition. Keep in mind, not to correct you, but the transition was more about adding as opposed to subtracting. Because when some people make transition, they leave completely. Because I heard that Albie Shore originally wanted to be a rapper, but Heavy D and them pushed him into singing. See what I'm saying? So that's what Heavy mm-hmm. D always says. He said, I wanted to be a rapper, but we pushed him more to do singing in Mount Vernon. See what I mean? That's a whole history there, but I'm pretty sure you right. know that. So, it's, so for me, it was more of a transition. It's like, okay, I got the gospel, I got the hip, I got the, I got the funk, I got the, I'm getting to rock and roll now. Um, my cousin just bought me this Miles Davis house, and I'm listening to jazz. Anita Baker really showed me about jazz so I could maybe understand why Miles Davis is who he is. And then here comes hip-hop. So now this is all of my world. Between the, again, between the ages of 5 and 10, this was basically my world coming into all of this. So the transition was more about adding. Hip-hop was just the icing on the cake. Because when I realized that I could be a great singer and a great MC at the same time, and I'm going to keep it real with you. I felt that way, but until I discovered this dope-ass group called Force MDs, who were originally the Force MCs, and of course, later on, as we all know, New Edition and UTFO, because Can't Go, remember what he said in that song, and Roxanne? I'm Can't Go. Baby, don't you know I could sing, rap, and dance in just one show? Because that's what UTFO was doing. Can't Go can sing. Can't Go was just a rapper. He can actually sing. So that's who I studied. So the rest was history. After those groups came out, with Itching for Scraps and all that kind of stuff, and I sort of singing and rapping and dancing, my future was set. I was like, okay. This is who Law is. So I knew who I was. I was a, I was a kid that loved all styles of music, even though gospel and, and funk and R&B are my dedicated roots, and I'm known more for that because of my own history. This is what it was with me. So by the time I turned 12, I made that decision, and that's why it's called Planet 12, just to give you a little brief part on that. So Right. And uh, growing up during the early years of hip-hop, did you, like every other kid growing up in New York, have your pause tape for Mr. Magic and Red Alert on BLS and Kiss? Not only did I do that for um, Red Alert and Kiss and Molly Ma and that whole bit, that's how I first learned how to produce. I made pause tape. When I learned how to take a, a loop, because I'm, I'm not a DJ by no sense of imagination, but I grew up around DJ. So even though I couldn't wicked, wicked, I couldn't do all that, tra- I couldn't do any of that. So the thing with me is through pause tapes, I was able to take one of my favorite cassettes. I'll give you an example. The first pause beat tape that I made was a song by a comedian named Pick Me Markham. I don't know if you know who that is. He had a song called Here Comes the Judge. Yeah. You know that beat? Boom, 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 boom
First of all, this is what I'm telling you. Without the funk, there would be no hip-hop because you have to understand something. When I first heard that beat, I'm like, this sounds like some of the beats that that Kane and them be rapping over. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was, I'm like, listen to the beat. I'm like, I don't hear the, the, um, the 808 behind it, but that sample, it sounds raw. So I would take the Pick Me Markham tape, do one part, put the tissue in the little part at the top of the um, cassette. You know how you put the tissue in the top of the cassette? The tape it, yeah. and that's how I learned how to produce because I was making poor tapes. So when I wasn't taping the radio shows, and matter of fact, to be honest with you, my uncle Kevin got me started with that because he was he still got cassettes all going back to '85 to this day. He still has all the cassettes from when when Busy B and Kumo D battle. He has the um when Red Alert first played um the Bridge is Over um and then played South Bronx like he. But like I told you, my uncle Kevin was a certified b boy, hip hop and old school R and B. That was his main two things. And when it came to Red Alert, Rap Attack, before he went to the club, that's what he was listening to. You know, they started Rap Attack at late at night, like in that part of 8 o'clock and the hours between that. So when that would go down, we would see my Uncle Kevin getting ready for the club. You know, he's dressed to the nines and whatnot, you know, do the hip-hop, get off, but he's still bopping his head and saying the rhymes and doing little dancing and stuff. We used to envy him so much. We want, like, we want to go to the club. Like, we're so young. We wanted to go to the club with us. But, um, right. but yeah, he had, he had those things. So when he would leave, show you how much we were interested when he would leave me and my brother peppy would go into his room back then his room was kind of like forbidden but you know how nephews are we, we kind of you know we kind of rebelled <laughs> so when he would leave we would go into his room and we would play the tapes we would play the rap attack you know with red alert and you know chuck chill out and, and that whole situation and of course later on kid capri you know we, we were getting into all of that at the same time we were trying his gear he wore nothing but polo and, and valleys and all that kind of shit we were like immersed and at that particular point like we were getting even deeper into hip-hop culture. Not straying away from the music that we love. Because at that time, my younger brother, Peppy, was in the dance hall reggae. He turned me on the reggae, but I turned him on to you, too. So you see what I mean? Like um, like, like alternative rock music. So we were constantly learning and educating while still enjoying the music and being fans of it all. But um, but yeah, so I was definitely into that era. But I, like I said, when I went into hip-hop, I went into its full throttle between break dancing, you know, to, to it's just begun by Jimmy Castor out in the streets and dance competitions, winning with my sister and my sister the beasts of dance too so we were constantly in brooklyn you know being in dance competitions and and learning all the steps and you know do you know doing things that what what siblings and cousins do when you're immersed in the arts and my family was pretty much all about the arts but poor tapes was definitely a huge thing it taught me how to produce records because when i finally got in the studio at 14 or 15 i knew what i was doing because of all the education that i received on my own making pause tapes but also studying how my uncle made pause tapes so i learned that from him now when you first entered the studio did you ever get your hands on learning how to work uh 808 uh 909 or a, a lindrum or a dmx machine um yeah well you know D, the dmx drum machine that came i mean of course that was like right before i was still like probably well at that point the only time i had been in the studio and that's a whole another story the only time i had been in studios was i was traveling with my mother even my mother's friends so of course i'm like there if you look at the michael jackson movie what's the whole thing um what's this button do lord don't touch that don't touch that i just want to know what it does like that that was me like that that's why i related so much to how my, michael was a sponge so of course i was gracious enough that i had you know my mother's friends that would show me this is your equalizer this is your treble this, these are what controls the frequencies of how we hear the actual music so they were teaching me and I'm sitting there soaking up and I'm learning all of this. So by that point, I didn't get a chance to touch the Lin or the DMX drum machine because by the time I started really understanding how music works and the production of it, I was well into, I'm going to say probably around 13 years old, 14 years old because then my mother bought me a Casio keyboard so I learned how to work the drum programs and that sort of thing. But it wasn't until I got on 
the TR. That's the first time I used that because at that particular point, when I began to get into production, the Roland TR was still somewhat famous because Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis was making most of their records using that. So around 86, 87, 88, by the time I started hanging around with my uncles in the more and, they, and, and all of them had it in the studio. They all And every studio that they worked at, they had that machine. So that's the first drum machine that I actually worked. And then later on, of course, I did the SP-1200 for a while and then I discovered the MPC and, and that was like, fuck everything else. Excuse <laughs> my language, but it's like, after I got the MPC-60, that was pretty much like the realm of combining um, the live instrumentation and, of course, using the digital part of it with the NPC, NPC 60 and, of course, the NPC 2000. So, yeah. Right. One of the things that was interesting about those early technology machines back in the day was that the sampling time was so small that producers such as Lost Professor, Prince yeah. Paul had yeah. to... Yes, I had yeah. to mention those names. They had to find yeah. little I'm, tricks I'm, and I'm, loopholes I'm, I'm, to I'm, get I'm, some I'm, more sampling time out of the records. No, I'm, no, they I'm, definitely I'm, don't. For, thank you. No, they don't. And for those of you that do not know, Lost Professor of Main Source is the one who discovered Nas live at the barbecue. Mm-hmm. You know it. Come on, street disciple. My rap's a trifle. I shoot slugs with my brain just like a rifle. Stampede the stage. I leave the microphone split. Take me to Tokyo while I'm on some pretty tone shit. Verbal assassin, my architect pleases. When I was 12, I went to hell for snuffing G. I said, bro, you gotta, you, you would have to been where I've been when I first, when I first heard that shit. You don't understand. Like that, it gave me chills. He's giving me chills now. Cause I remember the day when I heard it. We was like, I already knew who main source was. I was a, I was a large professor fan already. But when I heard a lot of the barbecue and nasty Nas came on, I'm like, yo, the whole hood was talking about it in Brooklyn. That's how deep it was with us. He was like, yo, who's that? Yo, he's nice. Like, when you hear people talk about it now in the documentary for Illmatic, that was really the reaction, bro. I promise you. That's not a fake. That wasn't meant for the, for the documentary. That's how much of a stir that Nas caused when he came on that microphone. We was like, yo, who's this? And very few MCs got me like that, but he was definitely one of them. But yeah, but you're right. Thanks for right. For, um credit to Lars Professor and Prince Paul, definitely. They don't get enough credit for the production work that really advanced hip-hop a little bit before Risen, those guys came into the mix and Right. things like that, right. so thank you. Right, another producer that I feel who true music heads know, but not, not everybody else does, Kurt Mantronics. Oh, hell yeah, absolutely. Ooh, you drop... You dropping some science today, bro. Yeah. Oh God. Wow. I, I, I got to. If, if since we're talking about the merging of hip hop and R&B, mid late '80s, early '90s, these guys, I think they were a precursor to what Teddy ended up doing and combining the sounds of hip hop and R&B, and that is Full Force. My big brothers, absolutely. Because Full Force, I mean, we can get deeper with them. I, I can write a whole book on them. I tell Lou that all the time. Shout out to Bowlegged Lou. That's one of my mentors. Yeah. Shout out to Bowlegged Lou. Go check. Got my yeah. archival YouTube interview with Bo Legaloo. Man, and you already know the history. So I don't even have to say anything else. Let's put it like this. Dude, I heard that interview. The thing is, is that you can't talk about the history of hip-hop, R&B, and, of course, even pop music. Right? That's a whole other subject and chapter. You can't talk about that without mentioning Full Force. They changed the game on so many different levels and still managed to still be artists, even though it didn't last long for them as a unit group-wise. But they made sure that their production and songwriting was at the helm of influence. Because the funny thing about the Backstreet Boys, My Love Is All I Have To Give, if I took away the Backstreet Boys vocal from that song, it sounds like a full force song. Does that make you know what? sense? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I didn't think about that till just now because when I interviewed Lou, he said that Baby Jerry wrote it. And then, of course, with full force, they split everything six ways and ended up becoming a smash hit for Backstreet Boys. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, because, well, you know, if you, in case you didn't know the full part story of that, they had just finished a, a 
meeting with Barry Weiss, and then when they got in the car, G was like, yo, I got this one. I don't have a whole thing to this yet. He had to, all he had was the chorus. And that's when Luna was like, yo, that chorus is hot. So, of course, naturally, sitting, the thing got it happened because that was able to give full force the kind of props that I felt that they should have always gotten for the fact that, you know, they enhanced freestyle music. That's a whole other subject. Like, they changed the game in so many genres of what it is, but still maintained who they were. A lot of artists don't know how to do that. So, you know, like I said, I could write a book on full force. So it's just, I get in my feelings when you talk about my heroes because these are people mm. who I studied and looked up to and knew. So, of course, full force was a definite influence because I started getting deeper into singing and songwriting, songwriting and production, rather, um, around mm. 15. And I saw full force name on everything I'm like okay well then I saw a clip of them producing in the studio and I'm like yeah like, like my grandfather I said these are the guys I gotta start listening to and look up to now so I can start learning how to produce my own records and learn what to do so guys like Full Force made it possible for me to learn you know right and we're talking about Full Force but let's get into this man who is my favorite producer of all time Mr. Teddy Riley how big of an influence was Teddy on you oh wow <laughs> Teddy was without question, and this is no disrespect to my other mentors, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, L.A. Reed, and Babyface, because they, of course, they're important too. They're very important. But Teddy Rowdy was the direct bridging of the gap between my parents' generation and our generation. Simply because if you listen to the first guy album, the first time we heard Aaron Hall, Aaron Hall was a modern day Charlie Wilson. So, and being that my uncle Tony was a diehard Gap band fan, I understood it even on deeper levels. So when you hear a song like Peace of My Love, Charlie Wilson could have easily sung that in the 70s. Think about it. Could have easily, that could have easily been on the first four Gap band albums. So, Teddy Rowdy had a way of implementing the fact that it's R&B, but we're going to make it swing. It has a certain type of swing to it. And guess what? It is funk, but it's a different type of funk because now what we're doing now, we're not using live bass anymore. And mind you, Teddy's not the first person to do that. We know that. But the way Teddy did it, it would never be done that way. And that's why New Jack Swing became the era that it became. And while the albums that we talk about, whether it's Make It Last Forever or in effect mode or the Today album or the Rex and Effect album and of course um you know I'm not I'm not forgetting some people but and of course Black Street later but Black Street can't even be considered that because by the time he did Black Street he had took the new he had kind of left the old style of New Jack Swing behind but that one period between 87 and let's just say let's say 92 between 87 and 92 those were the ultimate years of the New Jack Swing era so of course without question anything that Teddy Riley did I paid attention to on every level whether he he was in the group or whether he was just producing. I remember he did stuff for James Ingram. He was in the video. I'm like, he did that track too and then he did another thing and of course when he worked with Michael Jackson. If Teddy would have never did nothing else before he did Michael Jackson, the work with Michael Jackson alone stands by itself. Let's just keep that honest and real. But them first albums, the first guy album, Keep Sweats Make It Last Forever, I'll Be Sure It's In Effect Mode, Bobby Brown, Don't Be Cruel even though he didn't do the majority of it but Bobby was very smart. He knew that. He said, yeah, the L.A. Reading Babyface stuff is cool and I'm glad I did even though I didn't want to do do it at first, he said, but I need that, that street shit, I need that, that hard-edged funk, because Bobby Brown was already hit to Teddy Riley. He wasn't just like, they just that, we're going to make this song. No, he was already hit to Teddy. He was a fan. He's like, no, Teddy got this hard-edged R&B that has a swing to it, but you can feel the funk in his production, even though it ain't live bait. <laughs> 
Now, here's the funny thing about that. Think about that for one second. When you hear live bands play it now, it's still funky because basically if it was still the 70s and Bobby Brown would have came out with my prerogative with Teddy, that's how it would sound. But but Teddy understood the sonics and the technology of what my generation was accustomed to with the keyboards and the, the synth programming, the way the drums were programmed, the harmonies on top of the fourths and the fifths but still had that groove. So without question, I mean, I'm pretty much laying it all right there. If that don't tell you how much of a Teddy Rowdy fan I am, then I don't know what to tell you. Like, I really studied everything like that. We ran that out. The Guy album, we ran, me and my brother, every time, we, me and my brother and my cousin Tori, every time that we traveled and we was living in Arizona and we went back and forth to New York, our car travels was not complete without those four albums. I promise you that. Like, we lived, eat, ate, slept, and breathed those albums. <laughs> I said, breath, I'm sorry. We breathed those albums. Like, it was really that intense because we liked, we were already fans of the music itself, but of course, I'm the only one that's doing production at that time. I'm the one that's deep in the music outside of my brother. So I'm listening to the the, I like. the way he's doing the little one-point harmony and, and the syncopation, still giving you the bridge. Because Teddy understood music. And who's Teddy Rowley's mentor? Leon Silvers. That's a whole other conversation. We'll, we'll say that for later on today. But that's the whole point. Teddy was very instrumental and a definite influence on me without question. Because looking at when Make It Last Forever and The Guy album came out, 87 to 88, you got to think yeah. about it before those albums came out. R&B was very smooth, adult contemporary, Luther, Anita, Freddie Jackson. So when he sweat, Mm -hmm. I want to drop, it felt like a sonic boom where it was before Teddy and after Teddy. That's how big of a shift it was. And it changed the game. And by the way, I want to also give props to original guy member, Timmy Gatlin. Got to give him props because he wrote a lot of... He also wrote um, When Will I See You Smile Again from Velvet DeVoe. He was the co-writer with, with, with um, Woke Stewart. So, um, and also Regina Bell's brother, Bernard Bell, who's another instrumental guy in a lot of the songwriting on um, the Dangerous album. He wrote um, The Kissing Game for High Five and a whole lot of other songs. You'll see Bernard Bell's name on a lot of stuff on the second guy album, The Future. You know, So I, I'm, I'm sending a shout out to those guys, too. Those are my heroes as well in the songwriting, tip, without question. Oh, yeah, definitely that. And also this one guy who I doesn't get enough credit for his contributions to the new jack swing sound and r&b sound cal west oh hell yeah absolutely cal west break it down you gotta love cal west absolutely very instrumental very see that's why i love having these kind of conversations with people that know who the guys were behind the scenes as well as in front without question so yeah cal west deaf genius without question without question. Mm-hmm, definitely, Dan. You can go to YouTube to check out my interview with uh, Timmy Gatlin. And what I found interesting about the You Can Call Me Crazy record, I believe that originally was supposed to go for an effect mode for I'll Be Sure, but they already turned the album in and that ended up going on Guy's album. Mm-hmm. And that, if I'm not mistaken, that's Timmy singing Lee, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's Timmy yeah. and I'll Be Sure. They just, they just kept Albie's Al- background vocals. Which makes a lot of sense. <laughs> wow. Could have gone either way, and uh, we yeah. talked about New Edition a little bit and how they were the first young group to able to merge hip-hop and R&B. But then we have another group off of the Any Tree out of Dorchester. They took what New Edition did, went to the pop side of things. Give me your whole synopsis on NKOTB. New kids on the motherfucking block. Yeah, I added the curse in there because that's how... 
deeply I love those guys. First and foremost, I was at the Apollo. I remember like it was yesterday. You know, my mother had one first place. So now the great thing about being at the Apollo, I'm actually writing that. In the book that I'm writing now, I have a whole chapter about the Apollo days because, um, you know, as a kid, you know, your mother wins first place. You know, your uncle already won 13 times. So we had a lot of seniority over there. So, of course, we were able to go and see the shows when our parents didn't perform. We were able to go and see all of And I got so many stories about people who I saw for the first time and things that happened, you know, and, you know, the first time I saw Johnny Kent before he did Just Got Paid, like certain things that we talk about. So in this particular stage, um, we were in the fifth row. And I remember in the midst of this show, they was like, okay, before we before we continue on, we're going to bring out these these kids from, from, from Boston. So and the first thing I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, I said, oh, okay, there's another one from Boston? Because at the time I knew dude she was from Boston. But it's like, they're called the new kids on the block. And when they walked out on stage, we just, people clapped, but they looked. Because, you know, it's like, oh white guys white boys okay so of course I'm intrigued I'm like okay let me just let's see what they do you know because I mean look we already have Menudo out there so it's like come on we have Menudo we have New Edition you know so when them boys got to the mic and started singing and stepping the whole crowd went ballistic he was I you know what it was go white boys go white boys go white boys so I was a fan from just that start of that point because at that particular point I had only seen the first album and I begged my mother to get the first New Kids on the Block album for me. And she bought it for me. And, again, I was already like, oh, okay, I see. Because I already saw this. I'm like, okay, I see I see the similarities now with them and New. And I dug it because it wasn't so much because, you know, Jordan always says that the first album was very bubblegum. And I, and I kind of agree with that, too. But I understood the direction that they were going in because people forget sometimes that they were never meant to be a pop act. They were a white R&B hip-hop group. So by the time they did Hanging Tough, and by the time I saw that show at the Apollo when they performed, I was already a diehard fan. So for me, it was obvious. And then me and my brother, you know, we were deep into them as well. So, you know, the funny thing about most God, they're like, you might make it on the block. And that was the word on the street for most, because you know how it was back then. It was, it was ignorance, because people don't realize when they be like, oh, new kids have black fans too. I said, um, yes. Like, all, see, the one thing about all of those groups, let's just take a minute. New Edition, Menudo, and New Kids on the Block. Now, let's keep it honest. New Edition, without question, is the direct appeal to the black teenage girl audience without question because mm-hmm. they're young they're black they're from that now of course that doesn't mean that white girls can't like them there's a lot right, of but that's that, that yeah but well, that's that target audience oh yeah it's the target audience so and of course menudo it was pretty obvious you're talking now no not now now the hispanics and the latinos want to get in on it and, and menudo was dope i love menudo Me, as a matter of fact robbie rose is one of my very good friends so it's like even though it was cool for all girls to like them it didn't matter what race or color you were if you like them, you like them. But the demographic record label says, we're going to market Menudo to the young Hispanic teenage girl audience. So with New Kids on the Block, this is where it gets weird, but dope weird. Not a bad weird, but like dope. Even though they were targeting the black audience, Maurice Starr had the original plan. He said, we're going to go through the black door. Not the back door, but the black door. I saw that interview. He said that, the black door. And the thing is just that Donnie said it best. He said, ultimately, even though we were getting the props and people was loving on us and it was dope, the strategy wasn't really working because the the records still weren't charting as high enough as we would like it to, even though we were gaining fans and we were killing that. All. You know, all these shows were dope. They were killing the shows and everything like that, but it didn't really register until that DJ at that Florida radio station played it on a pop radio station. Because Please Don't Go Girl is an R&B record. It's not a pop record. It's an R&B record. But because it got played on the pop station, all the young white teenage girls were just asking, oh, that's a great record. Who's that? At the time, they didn't even see their faces. And then when they saw 
the five white kids that made this record for most of the white girl fans, it was like, oh, God, now we got five, we got five guys that we can crush on. Now everybody has a favorite. You know, some people, some girls like Diane, some girls like Jordan, some girls like John. They finally had got what they wanted, even though it wasn't necessarily through the direct funnel of R&B and hip-hop. That's why, if you notice, with each album, they made sure the R&B hip-hop influence was always there, no matter how many pop records they did. And Maurice Starr was very smart for that, because he made sure that there was a balance of both worlds. They also have to cater to their market because of the fact that now, in addition to some of the black fans you have, now you have young, screaming, white teenage girls that finally have found their white version of New Edition. Doesn't mean that we don't select New Edition. We love New Edition, too, but it's almost like now we got somebody that we can crush on. That's what I said. It doesn't matter what color or race because the real fans didn't care about that. But the record labels were always very smart. And that's why when they saw that Hanging Tough went double platinum, or I think even more than that, they started selling big because it was because of white teenage girls across America. They finally had found the group that spoke to them because it's almost like, but y'all have the Osmonds. I said, yeah, but the Osmonds were older by that point, like the Jacksons were. It's almost like outside of Michael's thriller takeover, the Jacksons, even though they were great, even in the, because I love the Victory album. That's a whole other subject. I love the Victory album, and they could have easily continued on and did that, but the truth of the matter is that Michael had got such a grip on young America and even older America with his popularity that it didn't really leave room for the Jacksons as a whole to keep on continuing in that type of setting unless the people were going to let them do what they do as a group and not just with Michael singing all the songs. So with New Kids on the Block, it was such a, a whole other great beautiful thing because now it was cool to see a lot of these young white girls fanning over there you know who's going to be their husband i'm mrs Walberg, you know that type it's the same thing with new edition it's the same exact setup the whole bit and i loved every fucking minute of it because i studied all of those groups I studied all right, of them. Like, yeah. Everything for me was pretty much that. Like anything that, like, there's such an influence on me because the balance of everything that they had was such a heavy thing because I saw where they were going. Like, when one of my favorite songs is um, My Favorite Girl because my favorite part of that song is when Jordan hits that. My favorite girl, she I'm like, you better sing, Jordan. And then a little, little footnote for you, too. This is how I even got into deeper into them and why I became a bigger fan. Because I'll Be Loving You Forever was being played on black radio stations. You do know that, right? Yeah, it was on Video yeah. Soul because I remember seeing it on the top show on Countdown a few times. Video Soul, but also on Kiss FM. Like, they actually would play I'll Be Loving You Forever. And at the time, a lot of people didn't know that new kids were white until they did Soul Train. You know they did Soul Train before. They did Soul Train. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they did. Please don't go, girl. Yeah. Which is my favorite new kids record because of the 808 that Maurice used and the bass. Yes, the bass, and then the whole harmony part of it, and then little, and of course, little Joey Mac. Joey, the way. Joey Mack, the one of the best singers in the game, period. Like, just the whole, the texture of it. So, we weren't ashamed. Like, you know, we didn't go through that whole guilty pleasure thing growing up because it was almost like a day, like, y'all like new kids on the block? I said, yeah, is that a fucking problem? Oh, no, we just asking. I said, yeah, okay. We just, we, we thought so because that was the main thing with us. And then just watching them grow was even more amazing. Like, all the other milk, except for Menudo, because Menudo didn't really grow as much. They tried to, but they got really cut off because of all the allegations of, you know, them being molested and, you know, all the stories I heard about that. But new kids on, new kids and new addition watching those groups grow and of course New Kids on the Block more so because by the time 88 rolled around um, New Edition already had splintered off to, to create the whole solo solo takeover but New Kids on the Block was still as a unit and to see them 
advance and mature vocally, production-wise, and to get better and better until they got to face the music, which was even more of a declaration of what they did. I studied everything that these guys did, from Danny's low baritone notes to, to Donnie's rugged swag vocal to Jordan's falsetto to Joey's big voice. And then even when John comes on every now and then and sings the lead, I love when John sings because people say, oh, John, I said, no, John can sing. John is just not, he's not going to be the first person to jump up and grab a mic and sing lead. But John has an amazing voice. So I studied each member. The same way how I studied New Edition, the Jacksons, the Bards, the Silvers, I studied all members of the group. I don't just study one person. Of course, one person might definitely get more attention because of the, of the way I sing, but I studied what each member did and what they brought to the table as a singer, as a rapper, and even as a producer or a writer, because they wrote a lot of the songs on their um on the Step by Step album. So, long story short, mm-hmm. it's KOTB for life, man. Those, those, my, right. those are my guys, man. My big bros. Yeah, I'm definitely a blockhead. You know, definitely go to YouTube, check out my archival interview with Danny and Maurice Starwell. You'll get full, raw, unfiltered stories about new kids, and they really paid their dues. Not a lot of people n- knew that they earned it the hard way because there's a clip on YouTube of them performing at a local Boston nightclub for WILD shout out to Errol Smith um, in matching Jordan tracksuit and they pretty much were working the crowd and cut their teeth before all the big pop stuff in the Magic Summer Tour well you gotta remember a little viewpoint to make too we always have these discussions and people come on and want to argue certain stuff what people don't realize is that Vanilla Ice and New Kids on the Block story is very similar both acts had nothing but black fans before they became pop stars. For the first four years of New Kids on the Block, I think they were still not new at that time, the majority of their audiences in Boston were black. Most of their friends are black. I know, my, my, shout out to my boy Jimmy Marsh, most of the guys who New Kids hung with, and it wasn't because they were trying to be down or they, they don't know, because there's people out there notion like, these are white, what do they possibly know about it? I said, they're from Dorchester, which is not that far from Roxbury. They're steeped in the culture. Donnie said it best in Behind the Music. He said, the thing that we had in common with the kids at Roxbury is that we had holes in our shoes just like they did period so this wasn't just some white kids growing up i love when um, donnie's brother always says um we didn't grow up middle class everybody assumed that because they were white i'm like no we grew up poor my father worked two jobs my father we was on welfare people don't realize that we said we were on welfare it wasn't just no we're from this is danny and that 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 was further from the truth these are regular inner city white kids that were immersed in the culture of r&b and hip-hop they paid the dues and to and in order to pay your dues you got to perform for the black crowd and to never get booed and to not have nothing thrown at you you're doing something right think about it you're doing something yeah, right yeah, be- yeah because yeah definitely that because that two-day stream album hook dancing yeah. a hard record i mean vanilla ice to me caught a bad flack and i love his stuff uh yeah no, he didn't catch you know what let's tell you what, what happened real quick with vanilla ice um not to make him about him but okay. even with vanilla just so you know i'm a diehard vanilla ice you know that i think you see my post like i'm a diehard vanilla ice fan to the core because again i knew the history before most people did you gotta remember vanilla ice was already opening up for public enemy and um Seth sonic and a lot of other people before ice ice baby even took off remember ice ice baby was a b-side it wasn't even the the a-side single it was a b-side play that funky music white boy was the single and it did some numbers it was okay but Ice Ice Baby was the record that was catching the fire and that's when the things began to change so of course when he changed with that was simply because of the fact that when they saw the momentum if you look at the Ice Ice Baby video that's really who Ice is with the um with the Miami sweatshirt and the guest jeans and the, and the boots with the metal plates on like that was really because that's his crew I'm, I'm actually close to members of his crew as well Um, all the guys from um, the, the VIP party the dancers they all had that same lineage but everything changed 
changed when SBK came into the picture. SBK said to Vanilla, listen, we're going to market you into this pop demographic. And Vanilla was the one that told him. He was like, I'm not a pop artist. No way. I'm not got my hip hop. He said, when I saw it, he said, my, my audience for the first four years was all black. I never imagined in my life that I would be playing for a all white audience. And that's not to say that I don't mind if white people like my music. If you, if you love my music, but no matter what color you are, you buy it. But my shit was directed towards the fact that I was into R&B and hip hop from the black perspective. Not with me wanting to be down, but this is the stuff that I listen to. I'm a P-Funk fan. You know, it's an interview you said. People don't even realize that. I'm a hardcore Parliament Funkadelic fan. Like, we're in, I'm into funk, R&B, and hip hop. You know, people always assume because I'm white, like, I didn't probably grow up with that. And that was, and honestly, our people make that assumption a lot when it comes to singers and people not doing the history of the knowledge. And back then, we didn't have social media. So, it, you had to kind of listen to what people were saying or whatever the case may be. But that's the SBK story. So, he told SBK, he's like, man, I'm not doing that. He said, no way. And then SBK said, we're so sure that it's going to work that we're going to give you a check for $1.5 million. And Vanilla I said, I was two car payments behind <laughs> and I was a dropout of high school. So anybody in my shoes would do the same thing. Of course, I'm going to take the money and do what they want me to do. So basically, I became a puppet. So if you notice, on my first EP, Hook, I had the Fila sweatsuit. But when I did To The Extreme, which is basically Hook with this extra song on it, basically, that's all that Hook was. If you look at the comment, they have they have me dressed in like MC Hammer. Because the whole point was that me and MC Hammer and Kid and Play at that time, we were the only three rap groups that had that extreme dance part of who we were. So we had to make records that catered to the people who liked to dance and party while hearing rap music. And to me, honestly enough, um, between Hammer and Vanilla Ice, because Hammer was the better dancer, even though Vanilla Ice was a beast with the dancing too, but Vanilla Ice was a better rapper. This is my opinion, my personal opinion. He had better lyrics. I like. I always love Ice's lyrical wordplay in certain songs. Now, was every song dope? No. Like every other Hammer song, no, every song wasn't dope, but the majority of the things that they were doing, I love. And you got to remember, I'm a dad, as you know, I'm a dancer too. So I was able to draw from that medium as well. So I don't, it's not, he caught a bad flat more so in a sense of where, because the truth wasn't being exposed or really being spoken of at that particular day and age, it forced people to go with the hype. But everything changed when people didn't realize that Chuck D and Public Enemy was going to sign Vanilla Ice until they got beat out in the bidding war. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, a lot of people don't know that, but when I told them, like, what? Militant, don't believe. I said, yes, that same Chuck D. I said, see, and, and I, I promise you, and I say this to this day, if Vanilla Ice would have signed to Public Enemy during that heyday, I can promise you, nobody would have never talked the shit that they talked about Vanilla or made a mockery of the way that they did. I promise no. you that. Because that's how easily persuaded rap fans were. Now, look at today in 2020, Vanilla Ice and did Soul Train already. He did the Soul Train Award. They welcomed him with open arms. I said, yeah, it wasn't like that 30 years ago because he was always, all he was doing was just trying to let y'all know that I'm part of the culture too. Like, just because I'm white and because I made this record, this is like a lot of whole bunch of bullshit. To see him getting love now every show he does is sold out he's on these 90s tours and stuff I love every minute of it because they finally done let go of that whole portion and people can finally admit that Ice Ice Baby was a dope ass song see I never had a problem with admitting that because I had it out I was a proud Vanilla Ice fan I was like you like Vanilla Ice yeah really I said shut up I, li I mm -hmm. like him and I'm not being fake Kooji Rap is my favorite rapper so you don't have to sit there and try to sell me on the culture of hip hop man bump all that stop it I said I know who my MCs are I know who my influences are 
I love Vanilla Ice for who he is. I don't compare him to Rock Him. I don't compare Hammer to Big Daddy Kane. No, it's just a different thing. I love all kinds of hip hop. It's not just I have to like this kind of hip hop to make it. No, I, I dug it on, especially Fresh Prince. I dug on it. Like I really anything that was dope to me was dope to me. If it was whack to me, I'd just say I'm not really feeling that. It's whack. So that was just really it. But I just want to right. hope I didn't go over one with that. I just to oh no 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 no. You're all good, brother. And now let's talk about right. one of my favorite funk bands of all time, Guy. My uncles and my aunties, yes. Oh, my God, Sky. Uh, well, as I say very often, shout out to my aunties. <laughs> shout out to my uncles. Sky was the last important innovative Brooklyn band because after that, we wouldn't see it again. Most of the other bands that would come out, like you know, like the Tony Tony Tonys and the um, Mixed Conditions and things like that, is Minneapolis, it's Oakland, which is good shit too. You know, it's not a, it's not a disrespectful thing for it to be a, a good thing. But Sky was the last band to represent New York as a whole, but especially Brooklyn, that was very innovative because you got to remember who who the people that came before them were: BT Express, Crown Heights Affair, and Brass Construction, and then Mandrill for for good measure too, because even though Mandrill wasn't a part of that particular circle, they were still from Brooklyn, so that made it easy easier to, to put the comparison level on that. So, in that jurisdiction right there, it became Sky showing you why they would be the last guys to do what they did. Because it was all in there. The aggressive funk part, the rhythm guitars of Solomon Roberts Jr. was a heavy influence on my guitar playing. Gerald's bass lines, fluid, um, Tommy's drum patterns, it just all had it. Bucci's lead guitar stuff, the showmanship that they had on stage. It was rock, funk, and R&B with a splash of pop. They took it to the level that the other bands who I mentioned didn't get a chance to really take it to. BT Express had a good, I'm going to say good four album run. Because the last album in the, in the late 70s, Brass Construction, BT Express, and Crown Heights Affair, even though they were making great albums that the people liked on the charts, it didn't really do anything that much. Sky comes along, they hit out first from the gate the first time around, and people kept wondering, like, well, how come the consistency with them is happening more so than the other? Because remember, Randy Muller, who's from Brass Construction, he produced all those guys. Kendall Solomon Roberts basically formed Sky as a whole. You understand what I'm saying? So Randy Muller was already uh-huh. getting success anyway, even though Brass Construction wasn't really blowing up at that last part, like the late 70s and early 80s, like right when, when R&B and Funk was making the transition to more danceable stuff and contemporary R&B. But Sky was at the at the top of that form because they were coming into that. It was more youthful. It was more directed towards what the vibe of the street was. You listen to a song like Sky Zoo, it's raw funk. It's definitely funky, but it has a certain pizzazz and a youthful feel to it. What you want to do? I want to play. I want to play my Sky Zoo. It's very, very popular. And they do this and they start playing the kazoo. That's kid stuff. So to us 80s kids, it appealed to us. It's like, that's dope and it's different because no other bands were doing stuff like that. So they were very creative. And that's why I said they're the last real important, innovative funk R&B band to come out of Brooklyn but represent New York as a whole because there was always these talks about people feeling like, man, New York is just known for disco. And I used to look at these motherfuckers on the P-Front bus like they was crazy. I'm like, are you serious? I said, no. They are not a disco band. It just so happens they have songs that got played at the disco so people can dance, but they were not a disco band. Neither was Brass Construction, neither was BT Express, and neither was Crown Heights Affair. They made danceable music that had to fall on the floor, but there was a little bit more going on. It wasn't just a cheesy... 
<laughs> it was more so. It was a lot of um, a lot of musicianship. Um, Randy Muller with his string arrangements on all those records. That's the irony between all those groups. That Randy Muller did all the string arrangements for each of those groups I just mentioned, especially Fox. So um, mm-hmm. then, of course, they had other albums that came out during the mid '80s that didn't really resonate. They were dope albums, but they didn't really resonate until they did Start of a Romance, which was crazy because Start of a Romance prove once again to what I just said. This is the reason why they took it to levels that Brass and those guys didn't get a chance to get to. Because they weren't supposed to have a hit with that. But you can't resist that groove. I mean, that drum oh, no. pattern, that, that drum program, and it was and it was a number one you see it was, it was a number one record. So here was Sky in in the early nineties, Sky, an old school R and B late seventies group that got a hit in the nineteen nineties. And this is the reason why and Real Love was number one too as well. So it's like that's all I can really say. I mean that's pretty much why they were a huge influence on me and because those are my uncles and my aunties because of all the, the mixture of all these different crews working together. Because Brass Construction, Crown Heights Affair, BT Express, they were all part of the same camp. They were all part of the same people that rolled with each other. That's a Brooklyn thing. It's really a Brooklyn thing. Like people you would hear on certain albums, they would play on it on the later Brass Construction albums. My good friend Tyrone Cox was the original trumpet player for Crown Heights Affair, but he was also playing trumpet on Brass Construction albums too. So to see, that, to see how that all works, it's all yeah. all relative. So that's pretty much why Sky is, is very important. Yeah, because I remember going up here and Start of a Romance and Real Love bumping on R&B radio like crazy. Then I got into the Call Me's Just For You and Highs later, and then I just realized, like, man, Sky, funky stuff, and shout out to two record labels that I feel is underrated within the music industry and doesn't get talked about enough, like Casablanca and some of the bigger labels, Prelude oh, yeah. and South Pool. Yeah, woo! Talk about it. Oh, my God. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Oh, my God. Wow. Definitely that. And now I want to circle back to New Edition really quick. So when Bobby went to do King of Stage and later Don't Be Cruel, and when Johnny came in, do you think Jam and Lewis worked with Alexander O'Neill, served as a guide for them and to how to bring Johnny into the group effectively? I'm willing to believe that. Absolutely. Because the maturity of Alexander O'Neill's sound at that particular time and, and the type of instrumentation and chord progressions that Jam and Lewis were doing for his album, absolutely. Because the whole, I mean, if you listen to Sunshine and a few other songs, you could have easily heard Johnny Gill on any one of those songs. Because just the whole level and the sonics that Jam and Lewis were creating at that period. And then you notice a lot of Jam and Lewis's songs, a lot of them in the same key, different ways of reworking the actual same song. Yeah, because if you go back and listen to If It Isn't Love and listen to Nasty's little boom, 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 and Nasty in the doom, 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 and If It Isn't Love, it's like they recycled some of their stuff from previous records and just twisted it and made it new on newer compositions like Human League, Human, the hmm, and then Ralph Trezant Sensitivity, hmm. No, that, you're going to laugh. That's. That, you, you, nailed, you just nailed, I, I can't even say no more after that. You nailed the perfect description. And when, and when me and Terry met and we had our talk, we talked about stuff like that. But you nailed it. you absolutely right. That's exactly what they did for the Heartbreak album. They knew to make it different but still have that sound. See, they were they were masters. L.A. Reid and Babyface, the same thing with them. They were masters at crafting certain tracks for certain artists but still having that trademark sound on it. Like, you knew it was Jam and Lewis when you heard it, but it was a different way they flipped it for each artist, and I love that about them. Right, that is definitely the hallmark of a great producer. Then also, um, back in the mid-'80s, Minneapolis funk sound was really, really white hot, but there was this one band out of Michigan that didn't really get the credit that they deserved, I think, because Ready for the World had the big co-sign by the electrifying mojo, WJLB, Detroit, Dream Boy. They were based out of, uh, I think, Oak Park, Michigan. 
and they were signed to Quest, which was Quincy Jones record label. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. Definitely that. So shout outs to them. And also another shout out to two funk bands, 70s, 80s, that doesn't get a lot of mention, uh, Fat Bat Band and BB and Q oh, yeah. Band. Hell yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually the first range of, of what we call rap music because the balance of all of that, and I don't even get into just to arguments and debates with people because they always, you know, people say Sugar Hill Gang, but it's all relative though because you got to remember the era where it came out of. That's the same time. It's all the same time. Now, even though before then you had records that had origins of rap, but rap as we know it in terms of that was, you know, Fat Bat Band, The Furious Five, and then, you know, BBQ because they were making records that had the appeal because they were smart enough to understand what was going on at that time too as hip-hop culture was emerging so yeah it's all relative it's all relative when people are like they did rap before rap was rap i say yeah technically them in the last poets <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah the, the last poets yeah yeah so tell me about tell me about you mentioned earlier about dmx sampling your grandfather's record for get at me doll and but it was first sample i believe by epmd for get Get the get off the Bozak. Get the Bozak. And then uh a Canadian rap group called Rascal sampled that for Northern Touch. Oh yeah. Yeah, so I definitely think because of hip hop, us nineties kids and later on got to go back and dig into those sixties, seventies records because they were the basis for a lot of those samples. Well, here's where it gets deep. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you the whole story behind it. First and foremost, of course, you know, because rap being what it was. Now, as we talked about earlier with my progression as a singer, MC, producer, multi-instrumentalist, whatever you want to call it. So I was still head first in the part of discovering a lot of samples that most of my favorite MCs were using. Like, for example, until I heard, you know, I didn't know, you know, Microphone Fiend is my joint, but then one day I put on this average white band song called um, um, Schoolboy Crush. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, shoot, I can't use that. So when I discovered just how much rap was sampled, this is why I always say my motto is to this day, and I'm the one that made it up, so don't let nobody else try to claim that they said it first. I, I said it first. Without the funk, there would be no hip-hop because the funk became krs1 said it in a song and i'll never forget it he had a song called out of here where he says that you know pioneers me and rakim didn't ask to be but right then hip-hop changed drastically people were tired of using the same old rap sound so we started sampling beats by james brown see what i mean because nobody didn't want to do the drum machine sort of live that you know so we started sampling beats by james brown it's like okay that sound is kind of old so let's start sampling james brown that, that hit that hit on South Bronx, that's from um, Get Up Off of That Thing. And then eventually they started just sampling Break Beats by James Brown and George Clinton. So me being such a diehard digger and a musician, and I'm discovering all these different worlds colliding. Like funk is becoming more of my calling card. Even though I love all styles of music, funk really became like my expressive part of who I was in rock and roll as well. And hip-hop joined in right in that. Because R&B is easy for me. But hip-hop, I was becoming that. So I'm like, I'm looking through all of my grandfather's records and, you know, just discovering samples, things of that nature. And, of course, you know, EPMD, from day one, me and my brother were a huge EPMD fan. So the first album, The Strictly Business, loved it. And one day, Unfinished Business came out. So the first thing I know, I'm gonna, this is going to get deep for you. The first sample, before we even get to get to Bozak, so what you're saying, that's my grandfather's guitar lick. For those who don't know they're listening right now, my grandfather was the official rhythm guitar player for BT Express. He wasn't on stage with them, but in the studio, all the guitar, all the, the swanky rhythm guitar parts that you hear on BT Express record, that is my grandfather playing. And his name is on the credits. You'll see it on the back of the album cover. And, of course, part of the deal that he had with BT Express 
was that, not with the band, but with the company, the record label and everything, not with the band. The band was already, you know, he, he signed on to, to groom them and train them for the stage, and they said, in return for your services, we're going to pay you, but also, we want some of your songs, because my grandfather was a very prolific songwriter. So that's how he was able to get a song like Everything That's Good To You Ain't Always Good For You. So I'm going to get to that in one second, but going back to so what you're saying, my grandfather was already sampled. Doom, 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 ba doom, doom. My grandfather. So basically, when I heard that, I'm like, that sounds like If It Don't Turn You On. That's the sample where it comes from, BT Express Record. I said, that's grass. Ain't that grass playing? I said, that sure is grass playing. So we listen, he listened to the album. I'm like, okay, we got to tell grass about this. And then we hear Get the Bozak. Ground phone. Ground phone. I'm like, ain't that Auntie Barbara Joyce? That's ain't no way. Because, you know, the original, if you ever heard the original song to that, you know, it's a full phrase. Ground phone. That's the whole phrase. It's my grandfather's song. He wrote that completely and by himself for the group. It was never a single. But the whole thing about it was that we ran to my grandfather. He about, what, 17, 18 at the time? Yo, Gramps, listen to this real quick. What you got? You know, my grandfather was very subjective. So he's listening. He didn't get it because, you know, he's, he's about, what, 50, 60. He didn't hear it right away. I said, Gramps, you don't hear that? Yes, I'm like... I said, Gramps, that's everything that's good to you ain't always good for you. And his eyes got big. He's like, huh? But but how does that? Because, you know, he didn't, he didn't know rap, so I had to kind of explain it to him. So what I did was I took my turntable, brought into the room, and I took the other turntable to show him how sampling works. Because remember, EPMD, when EPMD sampled it, they slowed it down. The original version is fast. It's fast. So all EPMD in them did was... They made it. They made it rap applicable. If that makes any sense, they made it applicable mm -hmm. for MC to just spit some shit over. We loved it, but see, at the time, this is how we learned about the business. Now I was going to get into a deeper subject with this whole thing. So I showed him. I said, "This is how it's done, Graham. See this? This is the original." He said, "Yeah, no, that's how." So oh, so that's what they do. They slowed it down. I said, "Yeah, that's how they sample records." So I'm like, "You're not getting no money for this?" Because see, I was smart enough at that at that particular time to know that if a rapper sampled any. Any um, old records from any of the classic artists, the person who wrote is supposed to get paid. That's how much I knew at 16. Now you, under now you understand why labels didn't want to sign me. They were scared of me because when you have too much knowledge at that age, it's scary because you know that they can't, they can't fuck you over. So Gramps looked at me and was like, nah. You know, I said, you're not getting no money for this? And then that's when I learned the complete story because remember, I have the gold records. As I'm talking to you right now, I have the gold records in my house from all the BT Express stuff. So the crazy part is that about... I'm going to say, I guess you could say, what, what, about probably eight or nine years later, probably a little bit more than that, the DMX comes out. Same exact sample. You know, DMX didn't even change it. He really, I think, I think he just sampled the instrumental, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. He literally came out with that record. And I'm like, oh, shit. And then here's the front, this is where it gets deep. Now, on EPMD's record, they didn't have, the, the, they didn't credit the samples. I'm not knocking, I'm just saying that in that particular, none of the samples were credited. But if you knew it, you knew it. And that was just it. But mm -hmm. on DMX's album, my grandfather's name is there because they did the paperwork. But here's the funny thing. My grandfather wasn't getting the money. DMX has a platinum record with Get At Me Dog, which features a sample of my grandfather's guitar lick that he wrote for BT Express. And when we played it for him again, I said, Gramps, this is years later. You still not getting any money for these samples? No. He said, well, I'm about to call him. I'm about to call my lawyer now. I said, Gramps, there's about four other records that got the same. So we pretty much schooled my grandfather. Now, here's the funny thing, just to give you a little back history. My grandfather made the fatal mistake of selling his publishing at the time when he was working with BT Express. That's the reason Ooh. why, because trust me, if, you, if, if he wouldn't have signed his publishing, I promise you, we would have never had those problems. And he would have very well been, he was rich at heart, but wasn't rich in the pockets. You know, he made a, a substantial good amount of money to take care of me and my brothers and my siblings and help out 
out and things like that. But he didn't start really getting big money up until he died, until he got the clearance for the samples. Because when we brought the lawyer in, it was so crazy because when we had the paperwork, they was like, yo, they thought Sam Taylor, we didn't even know who he was. Because I said, Gramps, I said, hold up. What did you do with your publisher? He said, I probably should have told you all this, but I was forced to sell my publishing because, you know, I need the money to feed your mother and, and your aunt, you know, which makes sense. You know, that's noble. You know, that makes sense. You no, know, back in those days, they would always try to buy you off with a buyout. And the thing with Gramps, they got him good. They really got him good. He got him to trust. They got him to trust them even more than, than he should have. And of course, before you knew it, he sold his publishing to a publishing company in France. So once all that got squared away, next thing you know, the money started coming in from the samples. And I'm a, oh, it's man. a proud thing for me. No, I, I love it. It's a proud thing for me. First of all, me and EPMD are tight. That's why I'm saying like it wasn't a, it wasn't a shot at them. I'm just saying that at that album, when we bought the album, it didn't have the credits um, for samples in there. If you didn't see it, but the thing was just that EPMD, Jay Z, Beanie Siegel, The Rascals. Um, DMX, they all sampled that one lick of my grandfather's guitar playing in the song that he wrote. And this is where it's a proud moment for me as a, as a, somebody that's held my grandfather's legacy. Because in BT Express, you know, their biggest record, of course, is Do What You Satisfied and Peace Pipe, which he also wrote. He wrote that song as well. So even though Everything That's Good To You, Ain't Always Good For You, was never released as a single, it is the most sampled cut in BT Express history and it's written solely by my grandfather. So that's a proud moment for me because it's showing you the connecting link between what? Funk and hip-hop. Without yeah, the funk, definitely. there would be no hip-hop. So that's the reason why, that's a personal, that's actually my, my favorite era of my grandfather because when I was getting deeper into the musicianship and getting into funk, the hip-hop part of it because most of the best hip-hop beats were all funk samples. See what mm -hmm. I mean? Does it make any sense? Oh yeah. oh, yeah, it definitely makes sense. And, yeah, and I definitely want to educate the audience out there. For those of you that do not know, back before you had to do clearance and everything, rappers were sampling records left and right and Absolutely. working was not getting permission. But that all changed because Biz Marquis sampled Gilbert O'Sullivan oh, yeah. alone again, well, naturally. Yeah. And, and, once, and once Gilbert O'Sullivan found out that he didn't get permission from it, he's like, take the album down, and that album got shelved by Bill Marquis because they didn't do the paperwork. And also found it amazing how MC Hammer was able to sample Prince when Dove's Cry for Prey because Prince rarely let anyone sample him. And then also didn't find this out until a couple years ago about Tennessee by Arrested Development sampling Alphabet mm -hmm. Street by Prince. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I heard, the minute I heard it, I'm like, first of all, there's not too many songs that have Tennessee in it. <laughs> so it's a no-brainer. When I first heard it, I'm like, they got that right from Alphabet Street. Shout out to Deion Farrell. That's my big sis. I love him. And then uh, we're going to go forward now. We're going to talk about you playing bass for Amy Winehouse, and why do you think the Frank album wasn't released here in the U.S. and we only got to know her in America when Fat the Black came out? In the state. To respectfully correct you, I didn't play bass for Amy Winehouse. I sang backgrounds and I danced for Amy Winehouse. I didn't play bass for her. But here's where it gets interesting, though. But it still, but it still falls in line because remember we're part of the band. We're the original touring band, so it's like that. The whole point of Frank was that I personally believe that Frank wasn't released so much in the States because there was this, this this big current of underground London artists that were making these great kind of R&B, hip-hop records with a little bit of soul, a little bit of funk, and a little bit of pop. Because keep in mind, when I first got hired to sing for, for her, it was so crazy how, you know, I told that story on YouTube, but how I got the job. But the crazy thing is just that it was the Frank album that made me make my decision because when they, at that point in my career, I had, a, I had worked with Shaka Khan already. I did some stuff with Freddie Jackson. I sang back upon some pretty damn good, I, iconic people and 
at that point, I was making a choice as to who I felt I wanted to work with. Because, you know, at that time, when people tend to want to hire you, like, who are you seeing back on all? I'm, I, I'm not interested because I'm real. If I'm not a fan of your music, I really, you know, it'll be for check. And at that point, I was getting money. So for me, it's like, I, I'm not a fan of these people. I'm not, I don't want to sing behind them. They dope. I'll sing behind them, but I don't really want to. So that became the whole thing with me. So when they asked me, they had heard about me. They heard what I did with um, Neil Sugarman, who's the head of the Dap Kings, who was responsible for Amy Sound, on mostly the second album, but definitely was already involved in the culture with Sharon, with the late Sharon Jones. So all of that was going on, and I told them, I said, well, you know, let me check my schedule, and I'll get back to you. Sure. I hang up the phone. I wasn't checking my schedule. My schedule was clear. I knew I could have wanted to do it, but what I did was I did my research. And I never heard of it. He's like, you ever heard of Amy Winehouse? She's making her American TV debut with her second. I'm like, no, I never heard of her. And I was, I had to beat myself up for that because I, you know, I was always up on the new stuff, especially from London. I mean, brand new heavies and Jamiroquois. I was up on all that shit. So it's almost like, how did she get below my radar? I don't know. It happens. But anyway, um, I typed her name in and a song called Fuck Me Pump came on. And I was hooked. That was my answer right there. And I called them back. I said, yes, I will gladly sing behind this girl because I saw everything that Amy was trying to do musically. One part of her is hip-hop. Another part is soulful R&B. It's obvious she got that funk. But then there's undercurrents of the jazz part of her vocals. And then there's a certain blues undercurrent that she has in her aggression. I got all of that in just one song. So by the time I got the album, my, my curiosities were satisfied. I'm like, yeah, I knew I knew she was dope. I knew it. I had a feeling. So, yeah. So, that's pretty much in a nutshell. Actually, my favorite. I love Back to Black. I love Back to Black, but I love Frank. Frank just had this real sparse. Because you see what she was you see what she was doing. I saw exactly what she was doing. So, that's my favorite Amy album, actually. So. Right. And that's why I got to give respect to all the acts that came out of the U.K. Because they made it no secret of how much they love and revere urban music in America. The whole Northern Soul movement was just their take of Motown. And pretty much everybody from Beatles, Cream. Absolutely. Clapton, Phil Collins, George Michael, all love and respect R&B in the U.S. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without question. Without question. So um, let's talk about Planet 12. Yes. (laughs) What we want to talk about Planet 12 on? It's the origin. It's it's your time. So Planet 12 and you take it how you want to take it. Okay. Well, pretty much um, as we discussed earlier, um, how I grew up, how these um, plethora of genres became available to me at such an early age, and it's like a smorgasbord. I'm picking and choosing. I don't know which way to turn. One minute is Miles Davis, next minute is Led Zeppelin, one minute is Run DMC, next minute is The Bars, Silver, New Edition, it's da 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 da. And uh, this time I'm approaching 11. So um, for, for most of my fans who may or may not know, I mean most of them do that that follow me for years and got the music and everything. Um, two of my biggest loves are cartoons and science fiction movies and Marvel Comics. Marvel Comics, DC Comics. I'm a diehard in that sense. That's why when you see all these new Marvel movies come out, I'll be like, they tell the story so long. They believe in a lot of stuff. So I'm that I'm that guy that's in the back like, no, that's totally wrong. But, you know, whatever. It's just the whole thing is that I'm, I'm a diehard. You know, as an 80s baby, that was my world, comic books and video games. So, And I'm a huge science fiction head. So I love Star Trek. I love Star Wars. And Carl Sagan is my favorite writer. So I was already interested into the cosmos and space, um, astronomy, you know, astrology. I, I was deep into that stuff even as a kid so around the time i turned 11 or 12 i have been doing talent shows you know we killing it i'm with my mother i'm singing with her sometimes she bring me up on stage i'm watching all my aunties and my uncles around this time Shaw pepsi rowdy finally hooks up with full force and and she has a number one hit with thanks for my child so all this 
is going on in my world. Like, I'm sort of like, I got the props, I got the family, you know, it's just in that realm. And a lot of the older folk that my mother and them knew, it was this whole thing is like, Lars can sing, he got a great for it, but I, I, don't, I ain't with all that rap stuff. <laughs> I don't really, I'm too crazy about that rap stuff. And then meanwhile, my peers, my age, I think about the kids my age at that time, with the exception of my, my cousins and my brothers and my sisters. With the exception of us, because we knew music, we grew up in a musical family, but everybody didn't. So the average black kid in the 80s, it was only two things, especially if you grew up in the hood. It was only two things, R&B and hip-hop. It was nothing else in between. The average kid. Now, of course, people like Vernon Reed from Living Color, you know, he's from my hood, he's from St. Mark's from Brooklyn. Obviously, even though he's older than me, he grew up not just listening to R&B and funk. He obviously grew up listening to rock and roll. You can tell because Living Color is one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. So that's the equivalent of me at that time as an 80s baby, being in that circumference of I've made a decision, and I keep getting pulled in this direction. 12 is always my favorite number. And if you look at the synergy of where it belongs, my name is Lawrence, L-A-W. L is the 12th letter in the alphabet. So that made sense. I'm like, hmm. And then there are 12 notes in music. I don't know if you know that or not. For all you technical musical geeks like me, people that know theory and all that, there's 12 notes in music. That's why if you notice, jazz was created upon the 12-bar blues progression. That's how jazz got formed. So 12, universal number, my favorite number. And people used to always be like, Lord, you, you, yo, man, you listen to, you, you listen to, I mean, we, we love your musical taste, but you can listen to some weird stuff. I've, I've never heard, I've never heard, um, Phil Driscoll before. That's a gospel trumpeter. I don't know if you know anything about gospel music. I never heard stuff like that before, but you listen to a lot of stuff, but they couldn't argue with me because I had all the hip shit too. So I wasn't like this weird kid. I was weird, but not this weird kid. I was still hood. Don't get it twisted. You get knocked the fuck out. Like, it was still that same shit too. But I was always into getting deeper into musical genres and arrangements and who wrote what and all this other stuff and I got tired of people pulling me in one direction or the other and the older folks saying you should do more singing and rapping my friends like you should do more rapping and singing and I said one day fuck that I'm going to do everything that I love I'm not going to limit myself to nothing Prince and Stevie didn't and that's one of my two main heroes I'm like they didn't so guess what I'm doing all of it. They did all of it. I'm going to do all of it. But it didn't really click. Now, I'm putting all this together at the same time. So I'm 12 years old now. Next thing you know, my Uncle Tony again. Remember I told you about his record collection earlier? How it changed me forever? So at the time, there was this song called Atomic Dog on the radio. George Clinton, of course. Now, mind you, I'm an 80s baby, so I don't know about the Parliament stuff before all that yet. I'm still in the 80s, and it's the number one record in the country. It's kicking. It's dope. And then that's when my uncle used to school me a lot of times about Parliament Funkadelic. And truthfully enough, around, around 12, 13 years old, my uncle gave me a copy of the Mothership Connection album. And there's a skinny George in his prime. You know the album cover. He's on the UFO. He's all the way up in the air. His legs are up. And on the back of the album cover, the UFO is in the ghetto. And I got it. I said, he got one foot in the cosmos. He's on some weird eccentric space age type stuff. But on the flip side, he's still hooked. You know, George's from Plainfield, Jersey. That's the hood. So it's like he was taking the language of the streets and putting it into this weird mix of funk and rock and all this different stuff that was going on with Parliament Funkadelic. When I listened to that album, there it was right there, Planet 12. It spoke to me. Yeah, man, because I and went rest, and listened and rest, to... And the, rest, and the rest is history. That's how it pretty yeah. much happened. That's how I called it. Up. As they say, and like you, I am a musical um, buffet. I like everything. So when I listen to your material, I hear a little bit of everything. And being independent, I think, is the way to go now. And we got to give props to Prince because Prince was on the do-it-yourself mode back in the mid-90s when he was selling his albums through the MPG website. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. Hell, yeah. Absolutely. Him and Chuck D. Actually, Chuck D said Prince started. So 
<laughs> so two more things, then I'm going to go ahead and get you out of here. Let's quickly talk about the impact of Leon Silvers, the Silvers, and Dick Griffey and Solar Records. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, let's start with Leon first and the Silvers. I'm, I'm putting it all in, in one category, like right there. Leon Silvers, remember we talked about transitions earlier, and then we talked about how, you, how people transition to stuff? Yeah. Leon Silvers is the official transition of what we, of what we know today as contemporary R&B. That's the reason why I call him the godfather of contemporary R&B. Because the stuff that he did with Solar years later, because you remember, the sound, I mean, we always make the joke about this. I was talking that too. A lot of the songs that he wrote for The Whispers, Shalimar, Dynasty, you know, to name a few, all those songs would have easily been um, the Silver songs had the Silvers wouldn't have fired their older brother. See how that works out? So the direction mm -hmm. that Leon was already taken to the advantage of everything else, because once him and Dick Griffey got together, he came with a sound and a vibe that was a little bit different from the other artists who were trying to do disco records. Because as Leon told me, he said, the whole thing with me doing disco was that I was going to do it my way. I was supposed to keep the four on the floor, but I was going to do these little different things that I did not hear a lot of other producers doing. So if I'm going to follow the trend, I'm going to make some things of my own. That's the reason why. If you look at that period between 77 and 81 with the Solar Records with Leon's production, you'll hear it. The transition was so... Listen to how um, A Night to Remember and There It Is and Friends as opposed to Over and Over. That's my favorite Shalimar record because that to me is the catalyst for what we know today as contemporary R&B because Leon didn't use a live bass. That's a synth bass that he was using to make it all. Now, he's not the first person to use synth bass. Let's just get that clear. Bernie Worrell and Steve Wonder, they were doing that before him. But Leon did it in a way where it fits so in the groove of the heavy melodic structure that contemporary R&B was getting known for at that time. That's why Over and Over sounds like Save the Overtime for me by Gladys Knight and the Pips because Leon produced that too. See what I'm saying? That yeah. whole groove. And Kashif took his cues from him too because Kashif would hit, of course, with I'm in love with Evelyn Champagne King and, of course, Love Come Down. You can hear Leon's influence all in that simply because Leon single-handedly changed the game through production by keeping the bottom of the funk but still giving you enough melodic and harmony and, and sweetness. He put the sweetness on it, but it was still tough. So this is why I'm going to tell you to answer, to ask you a question to break it all down. What do Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, L.A. Reed and Babyface, and Teddy Riley all have in common? Leon was their mentor. They all had to go to Leon. I'm talking about person, not just music. They went to person. Like, this is a real thing. If you notice, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, when they got the award for Soul Train, the Icon Award last year, they said, and thanks to Leon Silvers, he put us in... Clarence Avon put us on as producer, said, but it was Leon that showed us how to navigate through the, through the industry. See what I mean? Janet Jackson, she gave her shot to Leon as well. And the Silvers by themselves. Now, let's talk about the group for a second. One of the deadliest, most original R&B singing groups. And for all reasons, the first four, but before Boogie Fever, we're not going to talk about the Boogie Fever era. That, that was what it was. They, came, they, they finally hit at the right time. But the first three Silver albums are a total study in the vocal harmonic sick of the Silvers. Not only as singers, but also with Leon as a writer and as a bass player, as an arranger. So that by itself, I tell anybody, that if you want to train your harmony ear to BC levels, there are three groups you need to listen to. 
Mizzle, I love the group. My top three for me always, the Bars, Silvers, and the Jacksons. And, of course, there's other people involved in it, so we're not going to get into that now, but just there's a whole lot of other names in the name, too. But when I got deeper into the vocal part of what I was doing as a singer, those were the albums that I ran to in terms of the yeah. structure, how they would set it up, what note is Charmaine doing. Oh, Olympia sings lower than that. Oh, on Misdemeanor, everybody thought that was the brother singing backup. I'm like, no, that's actually Pat, Angie, and Foster. And I said, hold up, Angie's voice is that deep? That's Angie singing, um, love in this ocean. I'm like, her voice was that deep at 14? He's like, yeah. He said, that's what made Angie's voice very unique because Angie had this middle ground as her voice developed, whereas Pat, Pat Silvers had definitely more of the highs. So she was more in tune with Charmaine. So I did the studying. See, so for me, like, you know, as I got deeper into that, because my grandfather was a big fan of, of them, so I had all the albums already in my possession as I got deeper into the vocal sonic. So, and Solar Records, because they promoted this new production thing that Leon was coming with. I always called the house that Leon and, and Dick Griffey built simply because of the fact that those records, I mean, and the beat goes on. I mean, come on. It's a love thing. <laughs> you know, all the Shalimar records. I mean, you know, second time around, Dynasty, here I am. You know, as a bass player, as a producer, as an arranger, he single-handedly changed the game. So thank God the people that he influenced and literally taught certain things to, they shout his name out. If you look on the Blackstreet album, you'll see Leon's name on there because Leon worked with Teddy in the studio. Because Leon, I'm not going to say it here, I'm going to let him tell it if you ever get a chance to interview him, but um, Leon, Leon told me the story of how he met Teddy when Teddy was only 11 years old. See how it gets deep? It gets really, really deep because at that point, Teddy wasn't the Teddy that we that we would come to know. Of course, that would come years later at 18 and 19 when we started doing the Jack Swing stuff. But Leon said that he already knew Teddy from when he was a kid because Teddy was that deep of a Silvers fanatic. See what I mean? Like Teddy studied mm -hmm. the game. So Leon Silvers is the conduit of what we know today as contemporary R&B. Because without Leon's influence, there would be no new Jack Swing. There would be none of that stuff that came later after that. Leon created the sound that made it possible for those new styles in R&B to exist. He showed them that there's another way of doing this, too. Same thing with him. Because look what happened. Now. His sound changed, too. He said, he, he's a realist. He said, he said when people started using more of the, the synth-based thing, that's how he talks. Started using more of the synth-based thing, I follow suit. But you know me, I'm a real bass player, so I know how to really make that shit pop off. That's why if you notice, every damn record he produced the bass line was always deadly think about it nobody mm -hmm. can play that kind of bass i mean there's people that can but i'm saying more so when it came to those records that were produced by him for solar records there was nothing fucking with that you could put on right. five solar records back to back that leon produced watch that dance floor get crowded the groove of it the whole feel of it you know he wrote the bass line for James Ingram to play on a night to remember. That's James Ingram playing synthesizer bass. But he wrote the bass line first. Rick, wow. Ricky played guitar. That's Ricky playing guitar. That's Ricky Silver's playing guitar. So it's like they don't, I mean, they get the credit, but to me, it should be more names being given. If they're going to talk about musical icons and people that deserve awards, then Leon Silvers should have gotten, a, I mean, first of all, Silvers as a whole should have gotten it for being, their icons in the game. You know, they changed the game with their look and their sound, but especially Leon because Leon took it further than his brothers and his sisters. Because remember, when Leon started producing all this great stuff, what happened? The Silvers didn't really stand the test of time, like in terms of recording. They didn't really stand. Edmund did a, a great solo album, but it was overlooked. And by that time, people weren't really interested in the silvers. I think the disco backlash, and they, they, they listened to managers instead of listening to what their brother was trying to tell them. Because Leon was a rebel. And, of course, they got the um, siblings here. It was like, if you keep listening to Leon, I'm not going to have the success that y'all want. So, of course, 
they, you know, they took a vote. You know the story. They fired him. You know, and no harm, no foul. So Leon's like, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to go over here with Dick Griffey, and we're going to make some songs. <laughs> and the rest right. is history. When they take that to the bank was the first hit record, and that changed everything. But listen to that production. Right. It's, it's a disco record, but listen to the intro. That was some... That's like, to this day, when I hear, I'm like, this shit, I could, and I wasn't even, I think I was just born when that record came out, but when I listened to it from a musician ear, it's like, when I was working with Leon Lash, as everybody knows, I've been working with him a lot lately, like, we've been doing some stuff on Nicole Hall, I can't wait for y'all to hear this album, Nicole Hall, that girl is a beast, so I played guitar on two of the songs, working with Leon, in addition to already being a diehard student of what he's done, you get to see why he's the genius that he is when you work with him in the studio, and I would, of course, when we go to lunch, I would ask him everything under the sun, and he didn't mind, I said, what was in your mind when you wrote some lyrics now. He said, honestly, it's because my check was late coming from to go to the bank. So I just dropped the lyrics down. Take that to the bank. Save it. Rebuild it. Our interest, like, build interest on love. It's like, take that to the bank. And he's like, he wrote, I love hearing the stories behind it because Leon, again, you know, incredible writer, incredible vocal arranger. He knew what he wanted to sound like. You know, you heard the infamous story about And the Beat Goes On. He made the whispers do that vocal over about 30 times. There's about to be a fight up in there. But Leon knew what he wanted. That's the reason why we hear the vocal that we hear today by the Whispers. And, you know, they didn't need, he didn't have to help out with harmonies. He just knew what he was creating and let the Whispers do their thing. But he was also saying, it has to be this. But long story short, that's pretty much all I can say about the legacy of, of Solar and, and Leon and the Silvers as a whole. I mean, they remain my biggest influences. I still listen to their albums as if they were made yesterday because... <laughs> You can't go wrong when you study a song like Only One Can Win and they're doing their own vocal echoes. The only people that was known for that was the Clark Sisters. The Clark Sisters are known for that, but the Silvers did it too on Only One Can Win. That's not vocal. People thought that that was an um effect. And Charmaine told me, he's like, no, there were no effects on that. That's actually us doing our own um echoes. Leon would right. have us do that over and over again. See? Right, and for those of you that don't know about the Clark Sisters, Lifetime, next Saturday, the movie will yes, explain to you yes. who they are, their influence. That's a whole other topic for a whole other story. Forever yes. yours, classic ballad by the Silvers, most beautiful ballad I've ever heard. And we're going to plug your project that you got coming after I ask you this question about the Jacksons, primarily Randy Jackson and the Randy and the Gypsies album, which I felt was completely underrated. And I Absolutely. went back yeah. earlier this week and listened to the Jacksons catalog from ABC up to 2300 Jackson Street. And you can hear the growth and progression in each album but primarily on 2300, why in the world did Epic did not release She as a single? Teddy was white hot, and Randy actually sounded very good on that record and blended in perfectly oh, with that's, that's one of my favorite. I mean, that's one of my favorite songs on, on that album. Of course, I'm not there, so I mean, of course, I've only known through the interviews that I saw. But because of me being in the industry and learning how things work and learning just how much power one could actually have in the industry, because you know that's a lot, like a lot of that too, a lot of power struggle. Not not with Michael and things like that. It was more so because of the way the disrespect was being shown on a lot of different levels to how, I mean, I just read some, somebody just put up an article in my um, Facebook group, thank God for the Jackson, somebody put up something that said um, that there was a thing where Michael Jackson told Sony and Epic, why aren't you promoting my brother's album a little bit more? Why, why aren't you promoting it? So he fought, he fought for his brothers. But the whole mentality that I think Sony had at that particular time, of course, because even though the brothers, that's why I created the page to be honest with you, even though the brothers are who they are, 
by the time Michael did Thriller and Bad, it was almost like, you know what? Okay, we we got the Jackson still signed here. You know, Marlon's doing a solo album. Michael's red hot right now. And it's like, okay, yeah, mind you, Jermaine was red hot, too. People forget to say that. Jermaine was already red hot when he did that twenty Jackson album. It wasn't like he was waning. He was hot. He was already Yeah, don't take, take it like, personal. Don't, 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 don't take it personal. Of course, no, number one. And then the thing you got to remember, Precious Moments went platinum in Japan. So people people don't know what they be talking about sometimes. That's why I don't even like getting to Jackson's discussions because they always try to make it seem like, oh, well, they got, I said no, Jermaine is number three in terms of bigger solo career because he has a lot of gold and platinum singles as well as a lot of top charting. And mind you, as me and you both know, topping the charts don't have nothing to do with it being a good record because there are many great records that never made it to, to the top 20. It doesn't mean that it was, it was whack. It doesn't even mean that people were really joining to it because the powers that be in these records labels when they pull strings and they do things that they want to do not necessarily what what they should do i would say and i'm going to make a great assumption at that particular time even though they put the record out it was reluctant i'm talking about sony not the, the brothers they put the record out pretending like yeah we believe in the jacksons you know michael's not there right now but we believe in them doing this record but then on high side it's like man it ain't, it ain't shit without michael that was their attitude and i'm, I'm going to firmly believe that so when a great song like she comes out i mean thank god nothing compared to was a top 10 record thank the lord that that record did hit you know thank god it's babyface but Still, the, some of the songs on that album, including C, are great demonstrations on them. I'm like, the Jacksons just proved to y'all that they can keep up in any era because these are real singers that real concepts. But because they didn't push it the way it should have been pushed, people would never get to really understand why a song like She did not get released as a single. Because I think by that point, Sony and Epic really kind of washed their hands of the whole Jacksons thing. It was like, oh, okay, well, you know, Michael ain't coming back no time soon, which was true. And Marlon's not coming back either. And even though Jermaine already had his own solo career. So, you know, after they do this run, we're pretty much done with this. And that was pretty much it. That's why you didn't, the only time you heard from a Jackson besides Jermaine and Michael was when Randy did the Randy the Gypsy album, which is right not too far along after that, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, that's that's my take on it. That's that's my assumption, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, because when I listen to um, Love You Honey, the production, it has that Chucky Booker kind of sound to it. Well, yeah, because the Jacksons were smart. Now, keep in mind, they're all great producers themselves, but they were also smart enough to know in a situation like this, if we're going to have a record produced by anybody, any producer we choose, we got to put that Jacksons thing on it. And that's the reason why nothing compares to you. It is a babyface song, but the Jacksons owned that shit vocally on so many levels that you forget it's a babyface song. But the thing is that they put so much heart and soul. That trade-off between Randy and Jermaine is, is just beautiful. I love, I'm not a Jackson fan. You know, I love seeing stuff like that. I said because, and then Jackie doing the ad-libs and then the part where Tito's always the butt of the joke because he don't say a lot. Hey, Tito, you can't have him. Like, this, is, this is funny. Stuff like that made me understand why and made me love the fact that why I'm forever a diehard Jackson fan. But it was criminal that she wasn't released as a single because it was one of the great ones. And then Randy Gypsy's album by itself, I mean, that was a crime, how that record. But I think it had a lot to do with the backlash, too, to be honest with you. Not backlash. They didn't do anything wrong. But the whole thing was just like, yeah, we saw Randy. We believe in him. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but uh, okay, the record's out. People, and even though it's critically acclaimed because people were loving it. As you see, Quest loved it, a whole fucking blog on it. Loved the album. Critically acclaimed. It was a dope album. But the whole record label mentality was like, uh, he and his brother Michael, we ain't really pushing that shit. Right. Marley, 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 had a, Marley had a number two record with Don't Go. And Marley's album was dope. And thank God it went to number two in the R&B charts. But after that, 
you know, you know, we ain't really pushing this shit, and people ain't really on it. And mind you, you saw the clips. People was digging it. The people who dug it and bought the album, they thought it was a great album, too. And the thing was just that, but it didn't get right. that push because of the fact of that. And the reason why Jermaine got more of the past because Jermaine just maneuvered a little bit different. He was a little bit smarter, in my opinion. He's like, okay, let me get this record from um, Surface. Don't take it personal. Um, let me get this record from Stevie Wonder. I think it's love, darling. He always stayed true to who he was, and I think that because he was already platinum, it made sense. But when Randy and Marlon decided to finally give it a go with the solo thing, I think the record label industry was on some, uh, they, they're good, but they ain't they, they ain't they brother, they ain't Michael, they ain't even Jermaine. Like, that that was the attitude that they had. And I can sense that. And I heard actually people that work in the music business that actually told me things like that. They were actually telling me <laughs> that they were like the, the running joke. Even when Jackie came up with that album on Polygram, his, his solo album was dope too. And he went top 30, I think top 20, top 30, but it's the same thing. Yeah, we love you, but you ain't your brother. Because at that time, right. Michael had such a grip on the on the game that the record label industry used that as a vehicle to, to me, in my opinion, it's divide mm-hmm. and conquer on on a surface level. Because the Victory album was already a planned album. People thought, like, oh, they're just doing that because they're trying to... I said, no, that was already going to come out regardless of whether Mike hit the thriller or not. It was already planned. I had the proof of it. So it's almost like... Yeah, but because Michael exploded so much with Joe, like he said he would, plans got changed. So, of course, now Michael wants to fully pursue. That's why he said, I'm going to do this tour. You know, I'm going to do it. He said, because I love you. Are you going to, and we're going to end on this good note. But that's about it. After this, I'm pretty much going to be solo. And that was it. And that was it. And, and, and mind you, Jermaine said we knew. It was no no argument or no beef. Like the media tried to claim it was. No. He said my brother was ready to fly. He proved it. He was ready to fly. You can't stop him. So right. So that's what happened in the industry. I think that's what happened with Randy's album and the Jackson Twenty Three Hundred Jackson Street album, and I think that's what happened for the solo albums in between that period up until the nineties. Mm-hmm. Because I just think that the record labels were just not interested in the other talents of the Jackson Brothers besides Jimmy. Right, and I believe uh, the Randy and the Gypsies album that was put out on A and M, correct? Yeah, absolutely, A and M. Yeah. And do you think because Janet was also on and and she was white hot with River Nation that Randy kind of got pushed to the back burner because Janet was white hot? Listen, my assumption, my opinion, absolutely, without question. Because think about it. What's the closest thing to having two Jacksons on the same label? Who do you think they're going to go with? And it's not because, and it's not so much because, because mind you, Janet and Randy are close. And mind you, Jan- Janet says she learned a lot from Randy. Like most of them do. Like Michael said from the beginning, with, with the exception of Jermaine, he said Randy's the most talented brother in our unit. That's what Michael said. Michael Jackson said that. So I, I'm not going to, you're not going to argue with Michael. Michael, Michael, see, Michael never disrespected his brothers. He revered his brothers. He celebrated his brothers. Even when he was solo, he's like, I love my brother. Like he always said, he said that's because even though he was in a new phase with his solo career and he wanted to explore more of who he was as a, as an artist, he he did his time. He's like, listen, man, we did it long enough. That's just it. Y'all can still keep doing it if y'all want to, but outside the reunion, outside a couple of reunions, you know, I probably won't have no interest in doing another album unless, unless it makes sense. And it wasn't because he didn't want to be around them. It was because of the fact that Michael had a whole new setup now, and the same thing happened with Janet. Janet sold six million records with with Control, damn near ten million with Rhythm Nation, and then with the Janet album. It, it just took on a whole other stratosphere. So at that particular point, and by, by the fact, let me not even say that because um, Janet was on Virgin Records. But at the time when Rhythm Nation came out, the Randy the Gypsies thing happened like a big, I think a year after or a year in between all that. So of course you're not going to go, you know, no disrespect, you're not going to go with Randy. And it's not because we, we know how dope Randy is, but everybody else 
ain't really attaching themselves to what Randy's doing because they wait to see what Janet's about to do. Janet done finally done growing up. Janet done separated herself from the whole family structure and did the type of shit that she wanted to do. That's what I love about Janet Records, actually, because Janet got with, you know, even though the first two albums were very good and her brothers produced on it, um, Jesse Johnson produced on it, great albums, but they were the perfect setup for what Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis would end up doing for the rest of Janet's career. So, yeah, without question, I really believe that that was a, another conflict of interest, too, because it's almost like Look, Janet has sold eight million, and even though Randy's album is great, it ain't really selling that much. So you know, we gotta put more attention over here. And and it's like that's the business, you know. That's that's the business. That's the nature of the business. It happens like mm-hmm. that. Right. So now let's talk about what projects you got up and coming. Oh man, let's get started. Well, first and foremost, my two projects, my first two projects are still doing real good for me. Um, the Planet 12 Syndrome, the debut album, and of course, the Planet 12 Live Sessions. Um, that's my live album, which is all available on all digital platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, get it all. But what I'm working on now for this year is I got the Mega Dope Maniac EP coming out. I have my all hip hop mixtape, which is called Red Catastrophe, which is going to have some features from my big bro, the incredible Donnie Wahlberg. <laughs> and we got Jazz O. My other big brother, that's Jay-Z's mentor, in case y'all don't know the history of hip-hop. So that's the features we have so far. I'm going to try to get Rusty Jooks and, um, and Rock from Help the Scouts on there. Those are my brothers, too. And also, I'm working on an all-R&B mixtape called Purple Champagne. See how the similarities are? Red Catastrophe, Purple Champagne. Red Catastrophe is going to be all hip-hop. Purple Champagne is going to be me singing over my favorite R&B instrumentals. I'm even going to throw a couple of original, my original tunes on there to kind of balance me singing over some of my favorite instrumentals of all time. So we're going to, I'm going to sing over some New Jack Swing beats that you may know, some other um, hard, hardcore R&B stuff from like the, the mid-90s going into the 2000s. And then, probably before the year is out, um, I'm going to release my long-awaited um, double album called Psychotic Chameleon so if you love the friend I know you like the first album so if you like the smorgasbord on the first album wait till you see how crazy it gets on the second album we're doing like I'm doing at least 26 songs so it's like we're doing the whole span of everything so you're going to get to see that it's basically the, the part two of the Pancho Syndrome we're taking over where we left off the last time so it, it, it's going to be insane I promise you it's going to be crazy 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 and so that's what we got going so far and a, couple, a few other production work that I'm doing I'm working on some stuff with Dion Farris right now um, as well as as well as doing a lot of songwriting production as I told you um, um, Nicole Hall um, her album is entirely produced by Leon Silvers um, I'm proud to be featured on Twitter songs playing guitar so that should be coming out um i guess i guess the later part of the year and last but not least i'm on jelly bean johnson's new album two songs written produced by me featuring monty moore <laughs> yes that monty moore <laughs> monty moore from the time jelly bean from the time and ladies and gentlemen tony m from new power generation and that album is almost finished we almost be tightening up all the mixes and all that kind of stuff now so i'm featured on three songs on jelly bean's album because people people know about him writing black cat for janet jackson all out of the bit and him being a dope producer and a mega dope drummer but he's a beastly guitar player that's actually him playing the solo on black cat for, for, for janet jackson that's jelly bean johnson doing that so that's what we got so far, man. We got a lot of other stuff in the works. I can't really speak on right now. Some stuff being finalized. But during this quarantine time, my brother is busy. I'm, I'm making it. You're a working man. Like, you got 10 job, 10 job. So um, before we close, um, give out your social media hand. Absolutely. On Instagram, it's at Planet12Law. On Twitter, it's at Planet12Law. And on Facebook, um, under my real name, it's Facebook.com slash LawPlanet12. And make sure y'all go to my Spotify playlist, too.
Thank you. Ah, oh, man. You know, I got to have you on again so we can wrap some more and definitely talk about the new project when they come down the line. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. On Beyond the Album cover, my man Law. Law, thank you for taking the time out to do this interview, my man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, bro. Let's do it again for sure. Thank you for all your support, too, man.